Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. You can open your Bibles now to the book of Jude. Book of Jude. If you don't know where Jude is, it's easy to find. Just go to Revelation and turn back one book, and you're there. And if you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We've got Bibles for you underneath the chairs in front of you. You'll find a white or blue paperback Bible. And our text this morning is on page 594. Speaking of our discipleship ministries, Andrew, our youth director, recently led our youth through uh, what he called a Bible boot camp, and they spent hours covering the book of Jude. Um, and so it could be that our youth know more about the book of Jude than I do, actually. So uh, youth, you might need to correct me where I go astray here this morning, but just very excited uh, about the opportunity our youth has had to look into this tiny little book in great detail. Um, I told you this story about six months ago, I'm going to tell you again, because I actually have a little bit of an update on this story that I'll tell you in a little while, but um, you'll remember that when Mary and I went to Malaysia to visit our missionaries, we were on our way back on a plane from Tokyo to the United States, again, back in February, right before COVID, kind of went crazy. And um, <clears throat> we got in this very interesting conversation. Do you remember I told you that... Um, uh, Mary got her Bible out and was reading it, and this guy sitting next to us from Montreal, Canada, leaned over and asked her, what are you reading? And Mary said, oh, I'm reading my Bible. And they kind of got into this conversation about that, and uh, I was really just kind of hoping to settle into a nice long plane flight reading, but I got kind of pulled into the conversation and this turned into this, like this seven, eight-hour conversation with this guy named Renault. Um, and it was almost centered entirely on the gospel and the claims of the Bible. Uh, very articulate, intelligent, well-read guy. And um, he had some tough questions. I mean, he was asking, how can you say that God is a God of wrath? That doesn't make sense to me. That God could be so angry, but loving at the same time. He, he couldn't make sense of that. He said, how can the Bible be reliable? It's written by mere men. We can't trust a book written so many years ago by men. And there's all these different religions. So how can we know what religion is actually right? And those were just kind of the tip of the iceberg, the questions that, that this guy had. So Mary and I were on the hot seat. <laughs> and I don't know, maybe you've been there before. You may be on the soccer field or you're walking your dog in the neighborhood or over a family holiday meal or something and suddenly the conversation turns to spiritual issues and they know you're the Christian and they start looking to you and they want some answers. Um, I, I should point out that it didn't come out until very much later in our conversation with Renault that I was actually a pastor. So he wasn't asking me these questions because I was a pastor. He was asking me these questions because he saw Mary reading her Bible and knew that we were Christians. So in other words, this kind of conversation or encounter can happen to anyone. It happened to you. And maybe it has happened to you. So what do we do with this? Well, there's a word, kind of a big word that's used to describe this, called apologetics. Apologetics. 
uh, that word just describes the kind of art or task of defending the Christian faith. And that's what Jude is encouraging us to be prepared to do here in this short passage that we're going to read. You'll see in verse 3 that he charges us with contending for the faith. That's basically what apologetics is. And so we're going to look and see what Jude has to say to us about such an encounter as I have just described to you and what maybe you have encountered or maybe will encounter someday. So, as uh, Brian mentioned, we are continuing through Route 66. We are moving our way all the way through the Bible. We're now here at the book of Jude. One book left next week, the book of Revelation. And um, the book of Jude is written by this guy named Jude, kind of a lesser-known figure in the Bible. Uh, who is Jude? Well, you may not know this, but Jude was Jesus' brother. And we see that in Mark 6, verse 3. And we learn something about Jude in the way that he opens this letter because he doesn't describe himself as the brother of Jesus. He describes himself as the brother of James, who was also the brother of Jesus. But Jude describes himself as the servant of Jesus. It's almost his way of expressing some modesty. Like he considers himself primarily a servant of Jesus, not so much his brother. But that's who Jude is. Jude is the brother of Jesus. And this book uh, was written a little earlier, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, late books, you know, near the end of the first century. This book probably written about 65 AD. And we have these themes, contending for the faith, uh, as I just mentioned, presence of false teaching, and this constant theme of God keeping his people. And we see that kind of from the start to the end of this little book. So um, there's really too much in this book. It's pretty short. It's longer than 2nd and 3rd John. And there's just too much in this to try to do an entire sermon on the entire book. So I'm just taking the first four verses of Jude to consider this topic of defending faith. So let me read this to you now. Please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Jude, verses 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. God, we do ask, please, Holy Spirit, come open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> So, verse 3, this word contend is kind of setting the tone for this message. Uh, Jude's call to us to contend, a, a very interesting word. It's a very strong word, actually. Uh, the Greek word is from where we get our English word for agony. And so, what is intrinsic to this word is this idea of striving and putting forth very strenuous effort. It's a term that's been used for athletic contests and even to refer to certain combat, military encounters, contend. And so Jude here is 
appealing to us to contend for the faith. So we want to look at three things here today. One, who is it who is called to contend or defend the faith? Who, what is this faith that we're called to defend? And then lastly, why are we called to defend it? So who, what, and why are three points. So first of all, who is called to defend the faith? Look at how uh, the uh, passage begins here, because this is important. I, I think it's easy to assume that something like apologetics or defending the faith is something that's probably reserved just for pastors and professors and intellectuals and um, those who have been trained in the academy. You know, maybe it's just their job and not mine. That might be what you're thinking, but uh, let me challenge that assumption. Look how Jude opens the book. Verse 2. To those who are called, so this is who he's writing this command to, to those who are called. What is it to be called? To be called, he means here, is, is to hear the gospel call. It's to hear this declaration that Jesus has come and has died on the cross and has called us to repent and faith and, and put faith in him. We hear an outward call. There's also an inward call. That is when the Holy Spirit comes and testifies to our hearts that Jesus is Lord. And we come to believe in that because of the work of the Holy Spirit internally, in our hearts. That's what it is to be called. If you're a Christian today, I hope you know that you're a Christian not primarily because you called on God, but because God called on you. God has pursued you before you have pursued him. That's what Jude's talking about here. To those who are called. And then he uses this word beloved. To those who are beloved. That is just those who, who are loved. Loved in the Father, loved by the Father. Scripture tells us that God predestined us, it says in Ephesians, in love. From before the foundation of the world, his loving heart was set on us. And so Jude is writing to people who are loved by God the Father. And then thirdly, he's writing to those who are kept for Jesus Christ, those who are preserved, those who are guarded, those who have an inheritance waiting for them in heaven is being kept for us, as Peter says. And so you notice the kind of Trinitarian language here, right? We've got God the Father. Uh, we have those who are called. doesn't say the Holy Spirit, but typically we understand the Spirit is the one who does this calling. And then we have this uh, idea of being kept for Jesus. Now, just look at these three things, friends, and who do you think this is talking about? Who is called by God? Who is loved by the Father? Who is kept for Jesus Christ? Just professors and pastors? <laughs> no, everybody who calls himself or herself a Christian, that's who this is describing. If you're a Christian, this is true of you. You've been called, you are loved by God the Father, and God is keeping you until the very end, until Jesus comes again. It's a wonderful description of what it is to be a Christian. And so what Jude is saying here when he goes on in verse 3, and he says, I'm appealing to you, that you is referring to Christians. So who's called to contend for the faith? Who's called to defend their belief in Jesus? All of you and me together. It's not just the job of professional clergy. It's all of our responsibility. We see this in other places throughout the New Testament. If you look in uh, 1 Peter 3, Peter says, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Is that written just to pastors? 
And professors, no, that's also written to all Christians. Colossians 4 says this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Again, a direction given to Christians. The assumption there is that this is probably what's going to happen as you're out in the world and flying on planes and going to the soccer field and walking your dog and having a meal with your family that people are going to have questions. And if they know you're a Christian, they're directing those questions to you. Now, I realize this might sound intimidating. And that some of you are thinking, again, I'm not an intellectual. I'm not a reader. I I freeze up. I don't know what to say. I don't want to give the wrong answer. I don't really know what to do. I'm not very theological in the way I, I think. I'm nervous about this. That could be your response. And let me just tell you, by way of some comfort, I hope, it makes me nervous too, okay? I'm not super comfortable about always having to have an answer for everybody. And what I find very often, although I do try to, to, to read and prepare myself, what I find happens so often is that the questions I get have nothing to do with what I've been preparing to answer. It's kind of God's way, I guess, of just keeping me humble and keeping me looking to him to actually do the real work of convincing people. And so I want to encourage you with this uh, by, by reminding you of three things regarding this responsibility that we have to contend for the faith. Here's this, first of all. The Father uses ordinary people to bring others into the kingdom of Christ. Ordinary people. We see this in Acts chapter 4, the story of Peter and John. They're before the, the Jewish council. Talk about an intimidating experience. They're called to give an answer for the hope that is in them. And they declare, there's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved but the name of Jesus And then Acts 4 says this, when they, that's the member of the council, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized, look, they were unschooled, ordinary men. They didn't have some special education. They were astonished. And here's what they took note of. Not that they knew everything, but that these men had been with Jesus. That's what gave them their power. They'd been with Jesus. Spent time with him. And that's something that all of you can do. So then I can do in the best way to prepare to respond to questions that we might receive. Walk with Jesus. But here's something else we have to remember. It's the Holy Spirit who changes hearts. You cannot change a person's heart. You cannot give a person eyes to see or ears to hear. That is beyond your ability. It's beyond my ability as well. 1 Corinthians 12 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. There's only one way that can happen. If the Spirit of God does a work in somebody's heart, you can't control that, you can't harness that, the Spirit moves like the wind. Unpredictable. But it's the Spirit who will do that work. You don't need to feel the pressure of sealing the deal, making the sale, changing a heart. You can't do it. The third thing is this. The power, the real power for convincing people It's not in your intelligence or your cleverness, but in the actual content of the gospel. Don't underestimate the power of just the simple gospel. I remember in St. Louis, we had a Bible study with some people. There were some unbelievers there, and there was a a young woman there, and I was talking about what Jesus has done for us, and sacrificing himself, and laying down his life for us, and she said, you know, I don't believe it, but that's beautiful. 
It's like she just acknowledged that the gospel is a beautiful thing, even though she didn't believe it. So this is what Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Power is found in the gospel. So who is called to defend the faith? All of us are called to, to defend the faith. And we need not to lose sight of the fact that the power for convincing people is in the gospel. So let me give you an example and just kind of do a little thought experiment here with you. Um, you know, the kind of questions you might get uh, from somebody asking about the gospel would be something like this. And I think this is helpful for us to kind of get out of our little Christian bubble sometime and, and think about how the things that we say to each other as Christians sound to people outside the faith. You know, so we say things like, you know, the Father sent the Son to die. So we say that. We should say that. That's true. But how does an unbeliever hear that? Now, you say that to an unbeliever, and what he might say is, wait a minute, are you saying that God killed his Son? So what do you say to that? God killed his Son. Well, I mean, in a sense, <laughs> yeah. And then he might say, well, you know what we do to people who, fathers who kill their sons? We call them child abusers. Uh, we call them murderers. When fathers kill sons, we put those people in jail. And that's the God you worship? What do you say? What do you say? I mean, that's, friends, as a Christian, you need to know how to answer that. Now, one way we can answer that, I suppose there's a number of different ways, but, but here's one way to answer that, is to say, you know, to say that the father killed the son, it's just a little misleading. <laughs> the father sent the son, yes, but the son, Jesus, did not go to the cross unwillingly. It's not like the father was running after the son with a knife and the, knife's trying to, or the son's trying to get out of the house to avoid being killed. You know, that's the idea, I think, that people have in their mind when a Christian talks about the Father sending the Son to die. The Son gladly and willingly went to the cross. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit together agreed that this is a way to save people. And so we see in Hebrews 12, for instance, it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. In John 10, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. Nobody kills me. Nobody murders me. He says, I lay my life down willingly. Jesus says, this is what I want to do. It's the task given me by my Father. I love the people that the Father has given me to save, and I gladly go to the cross for their salvation. So that's what makes the gospel beautiful. <laughs> and that's the kind of thing that we can relay to people. They might not like it or believe it, but that's the proper way to understand what we talk about when we say the Father has sent the Son to die. So, who is called to defend the faith? Well, all of us are. But here's the second thing. What faith are we called to defend? What faith are we called to defend? So, going back to our text, if you look at Judas' initial intention here in verse 3, he says, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. And so Judas kind of saying, you know, I, I was just wanting to talk about the gospel with, with you guys, just to kind of talk about the salvation we have in, in common with each, with each other. But then Jude says, I found it necessary, though. There's a pressing need here, something going on in the church, and I've got to appeal to you, Christians, to contend for what? The faith. The faith. 
So, so what is that? What is the faith? And we've got to be careful how we understand this, because when we see the word faith, often we think of faith as something internal, like a, you know, our internal trust or our, our internal belief. But when the scripture refers to it in this way, with the article in front of it, the, the faith, what Jude here is talking about is not something internal, but something external. The faith is a a body of belief, of accepted doctrine that has been handed down by the apostles, a set of convictions, objective statements about what is true. That's what Jude is talking about here. The faith. This is what we are to contend for. So there's other places in the New Testament where you will see the phrase used this way, like in Acts 6. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. They didn't become obedient to their own internal belief. They're becoming obedient to something outside of themselves, described as the faith. Uh, Again, 1 Timothy 4, kind of the inverse, the negative inverse here. The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. That doesn't mean depart from their internal belief. It means departing from the body of belief, the accepted doctrine and set of convictions that have been handed down by the apostles. So that's what we see in the rest of verse 3 here. What is it about this faith, the faith? Jude says, It's once for all, so we get a sense of finality here that this body of conviction is is final. It's not to be added to or augmented later on. It's for all. It's a universally binding set of convictions to which all people everywhere are accountable, and it is delivered to the saints It's a body of belief that's now being handed down from generation to generation. Objective content that is received by one group and handed down to another so that over the centuries this faith can be perpetuated and preserved. So we get a picture of this here. Look in 1 Corinthians 15, how Paul writes this. Watch this. I delivered to you, he says, he's handed it down as of first importance what I also received. So what's the content of the faith? And here we get a short little summary of that. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So do you see what Paul is saying here? I I received it, and now I'm delivering it. And it's being passed on. So here's the way it, it works. It starts with the ministry of Jesus. He comes to this earth. He He teaches, he performs miracles, he um, delivers people from diseases, he describes what he's going to do, he says, I'm going to go to the cross, and the chief priests are going to kill me, and I'm going to be raised up on the third day. So Jesus lives perfectly in obedience to the Father, he teaches, and then Jesus hands that to the apostles, Peter, Paul, John, these apostles that he's gathered around him, and he teaches them, and he gives this faith to them and he commands them to hand it down to the churches and so now the faith is passed on to the church that's what paul was talking about what i received i'm delivering it to you the churches and so now the churches they have this faith this body of apostolic doctrine and the churches then are called to preserve and guard that faith until it gets to you and to me 
And that's what the church has been doing. Think of that. For 20 centuries, this message, this apostolic gospel and doctrine, by the grace of God and through the effort of the churches, has been guarded and protected. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 to, to Timothy. Guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you, Timothy. That's the task of the church. And now our task is to continue to preserve it for future generations, for the people who come after us, not only for our children, for all future generations, centuries ahead, assuming Jesus doesn't come before then. This is our task as a church, a primary task of ours. We have been trusted with a beautiful thing, and we've got to protect it. That's what the New Testament calls us to do. Have you seen the movie 1917 from last year? Some of you see that? Really good movie about World War I. It's about these two soldiers, and uh, they're entrusted with a message. And there's a regiment far away, and they're in the midst of battle, and this regiment is about to set out on attack, and these military leaders come to understand that that regiment, if it, if it does that, it's going to get slaughtered. And so a message has to be gotten to them so that they don't rush out and make this attack. And so these two soldiers are given the message. It's like, take this and get it to them now. And so these soldiers, I mean, this whole movie is just about what they have to endure. They, they have to cross enemy territory. They have to face many, many dangers. They have to get there before it's too late. There's an urgency about everything that they're doing. There's much resistance to all of their efforts. They gotta get the message to these people so that they're saved. And there's just such a clear link to that movie and what we're called to as the church. We have a message. It's been entrusted to us. If people don't get it, they're gonna die. Time is limited. There's much resistance. We're in enemy territory. But God's call to us is to take that apostolic doctrine, the gospel, the faith, protect it, preserve it, and proclaim it. Now, the point here is what faith are we called to defend? So I want to be very clear about what I mean when I say the, the faith. What is it that we're called to defend? I mean, here's, I think, a problem that many of us can get into, and as we get distracted from the main essence of the gospel, and we begin to think it's more important to defend other things than to defend the gospel. And we start to defend things like our political views. And we get to defending our position on Donald Trump. We get to start to defend our position on racism and social justice and capitalism and America. And on and on it goes. And these things are important. They are worth discussing. It's okay to have strong opinions. But when you're defending those things, friends, don't think you're defending the gospel. There's a difference. The faith, once and for all, handed down is not your position on Donald Trump. It's the declaration of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's not even really your position on baptism or your position of, on speaking in tongues or charismatic gifts. Again, those things are important to understand. But you don't need to get distracted on all those things. You don't need to be able to explain every single thing in the Bible. That's not what we're saying. That's not what Jude is saying. It's not what I am saying. Don't make it hard on yourself. It's the gospel. Can you defend the gospel? Can you explain people why God is angry at sin? Can you explain why he had to send his son 
Can you explain why, why did Jesus have to die? Was that necessary? Really, he's risen from the dead? How do you know? These are, these are basic things, friends. These are not complicated things. These are not things that are beyond you. These are not things that are too hard for you to understand. You can get it, but you've got to put forth some effort, maybe some agony. You've got to strive. Be in your Bible and learn these things. Don't get caught up on all the secondary things. You can deal with those things later. Deal with the basic essence of the gospel. God has created you. What is it to be a sinner? What has God done? What has Jesus done? How does a person get saved? That's what Jude is talking about here. That's what we're called to defend. Secondary matters can wait, but let's make a priority out of defending the gospel. The last thing here, why? Why are we called to defend the faith? And we see that in verse 4. Verse 4 tells us, certain people have crept in, John says. So, uh, Jude says. Uh, so, we get the idea here, these are people who are in the church, okay? Sometimes we worry so much about the culture outside of us, but here's these people who've crept in unnoticed. It's under the radar. These are sneaky people. These are people who are in and you don't know it. They're hard to identify. They come in under the radar, and Jude says they are ungodly people, and they have been designated for this condemnation, kind of a difficult text. They, under God's sovereignty and uh, in accordance with how the Old Testament has prophesied, there are going to be these ungodly false teachers who are going to worm their way into the church. And so the answer is, to this question, why are we called to defend the faith? And the answer is just simply this, because the faith is always under attack, always, throughout all of history. It's never been different, it won't be any different. The gospel, the faith that Jude is talking about is always under attack, and here's how he describes this particular attack. In particular, what these people do, the end of verse four, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So there's two things here. You might remember what I said last week when I talked about walking in the truth. What is it to walk in the truth? It has to do with behavior and belief. What we believe and how we behave, the creed that we believe and the conduct in our lives, both of those things, not one or the other, but both. We kind of see that right here. First of all, here's what uh, perverting the gospel has to do with. Behavior in particular. Behavior. Verse 4, they pervert the grace of God and turn it into sensuality. That, that's a reference to sexual sins, which Jude refers to a little later in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Could be a reference to homosexuality here. And so what Jude is saying is that these ungodly people, they pervert the grace of God. That is, they... They take what's true about God, that is that he is a gracious God and he's a loving God, and they draw unbiblical conclusions from that. And they say, well, because God is gracious and loving, that must mean he doesn't care how I live. He doesn't care who I love. He doesn't care what I do in private. He's a God of grace. God's not so interested in our obedience. He's all about grace. What Jude is saying is that is a perversion of the gospel. 
This idea that it doesn't matter how you live because God accepts you just as you are and he doesn't expect anything from you, that's a perversion of the gospel. And that's what, what Jude is, is laying down here, related to behavior, related to conduct. But we also have something related to belief, I think, because at the end of verse 4, not only do they pervert the grace of God into sensuality, but they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So exactly how do they deny this? Not really sure, but given what we found in the rest of the New Testament, could be denying the divinity of Jesus, could be denying the humanity of Jesus, but it's interesting that Jude uses that word only there, to deny our only master and Lord. Maybe a denial of the idea that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved, the only way to the Father. Isn't this interesting how in this little verse 4, we have maybe two of the biggest, most serious apologetic questions that you and I are called to answer in this day and age. How can you say that homosexual conduct is immoral when people love each other and they seem happy? How can you say that? And how can you say that Jesus is the only way? How can you say that all these other religions are, are not sufficient ways to get to God? Those are more complicated questions. <laughs> But those are questions you're, you're probably going to be getting if you're interacting with others and prepared to respond to questions. If, if this is creating lots of questions in your mind and you're thinking, you know, I don't know how to answer any of the questions this guy's talking about. <laughs> I just want you to say, okay, that's fine. Let's, let's talk about that, okay? Could you come and talk to me or, or, or come to Pastor Brian and let's work on that together. Let's meet. Let's talk. Let's go through a study and figure out the answers. Don't, don't be panicky still love you. It's okay. We want you here. We want to help you. That's what we're here for. That's what the church is for. So if you're thinking, I don't know what to do with all this stuff, then, then let's, let's talk. But uh, here's the way uh, uh, a guy named B.D. Warfield summed it up, I think is really helpful. The church, he says, has to fight for every inch of ground. And whenever she ceases to contend for the truth, she ceases to advance. She contends with an improper spirit, you know, disrespect, pride, haughtiness, condescension, self-righteousness. If we contend in that way, then it's our mistake and it's a sin. We need to confess and repent. But to contend no more, because we might make a mistake, is to disregard the command of our master and betray his cause to the enemy. So, practical step to maybe kind of get a start on how to be prepared to contend for the faith. Um, these DVDs are just so good. And I recommended one of these several weeks ago, the one on the left, um, American Gospel. The subtitle you probably can't read. It's right in the middle. It's called Grace, uh, Christ Alone. American Gospel, Christ Alone. And the second one there is a sequel, and that's called American Gospel, Christ Crucified. So, you know, maybe you're thinking, I'm not a big reader. I don't really want to read a book. You know, these are DVDs. Put them in and watch them. They're lengthy, but man, they're super helpful. They're really well done. They will show you the kinds of teachings that are out there in the church even that we need to be prepared to respond to. And they're so clear about just the basics of the gospel. I highly recommend these to you. I don't know, like $15 a piece maybe through Amazon. Easy to get. That is, if you still have a DVD player in the house, I know that not everybody does, but um, let me recommend these to you. Oh, what, what about Renault? What about him? So the update. 
No, he hasn't become a Christian. Uh, I don't have a triumphant victory story for you in, in that regard, but um, Mary has been actually in touch with him through Facebook, and just a couple months ago, she was interacting with him on something, and, and he did say this. He said, you know, I often think of the conversation we had on the point. And he also said, I envy you for being in the grace of God. That's a step forward. That's good. You know, we didn't convince him with all of our arguments, but it seems like maybe the Spirit of God is at work. Maybe one day he will be in the grace of God. That's our prayer. Maybe one day he will be called to give an answer for the hope that is in him. And that would be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it? For Renault and for all of those that God has brought to you and will bring to you. God is faithful to use your efforts. They're small, they're feeble, they're maybe never as effective as you think, but God's spirit is mighty and he changes the hardest of hearts. So be ready and then trust the rest of him. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this call, although it is a tall order. Lord, we trust not in ourselves, not in our own abilities, not in our strength, not in our intelligence, but in you, your gospel, and your spirit. Use us, we pray, as your servants. In Jesus' name, amen.